In one of her sermons some years ago, the preacher Debbie Blue noted that the word glory feels like an overused word. These days a hotel might invite you to swim in the glory of our outdoor pool. Or a basketball player sinks a 40-foot jump shot at the buzzer to win the game for his team, and reporters say that the player was covered in glory. Or Nescafe invites you to take a cup of their coffee onto a veranda to enjoy a glorious sunrise. But what is glory? The Gospel of John talks about it a lot, but how and when the word crops up might surprise you. Today on Groundwork, we'll continue to explore John's Gospel. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Dave Bast. And I'm Scott Jose. And Dave, uh, this now is the second program out of a seven-part series in which we are almost doing the impossible. We're going to try to cover the entire 21 chapters of the Gospel of John in these seven programs. In the first program, we saw John's majestic prologue in John chapter 1, as well as the unique way by which John the Baptist identified Jesus and, through John's witness, uh, the first disciples, uh, Andrew and Simon, uh, and then eventually Nathaniel and and a few others will, before chapter 1 is done, will join Jesus. And now we're going to move to chapter 2 in this program, which, as we said, begins the first major section of John. Chapters 2 through 12 are known as the Book of Signs. Right. We're going to think also about one of the major themes of John as we're covering this ground. We have to kind of pick out some of the themes, and one of them is glory. So we saw it already in the prologue in chapter 1 where John the Evangelist says, we beheld his glory, and now the signs, as we see, will point to his glory. And the first of them comes in John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So as the story goes on, Jesus uh, tells the servants to fill the jars with water, which they do, and now take some out, and they bring it to the host, and he discovers, oh, wow, this is terrific wine. (laughs) This is unusual. You've saved the best wine till last. So that's the story, uh, the first sign. First of all, we should note that nobody is quite sure what to make of chapter 2, verse 1, when it says, on the third day. The third day after what? Nobody knows. Uh, It doesn't fit with the chronology in John 1. There were a few different days in John 1, but now they've traveled to Cana, which uh, must be a little bit of a journey. So we don't know this third day thing, except one thing we do know is that in Jewish literature, including in the Old Testament, anything that happens on the third day is momentous. And of course, ultimately, (laughs) on the third day, he rose again as part of the Apostles' Creed. guess what? Um, The third day is... So this, I think, was John's way of saying something momentous is happening in this chapter. It's a third day, you see. So pay attention. Problem is, this sure doesn't look momentous. It's a wedding. Right. It's a wedding where somebody made a goof with the catering order and didn't order quite enough wine for the multi-day celebrations they had for weddings back then. So eh, it's a mistake. It's a social faux pas. It's a little embarrassing, but doesn't look terribly momentous or something that requires the word made flesh to intervene in. Yeah, right. Mary, Jesus' mother, is there. 
and she tells him to do something. Come on, solve this problem. And, and Jesus replies oddly to her, almost, it sounds almost rude, like woman, he calls her. Not, okay, mom, uh, but woman, why do you bother me with this? And then he turns around, she tells the servants, just follow his orders. And Jesus creates out of water, what, 120 or 180 gallons of wine, somewhere in between there? I mean, you'd need a truck to take all this wine in. What's the deal with that? I think this is a very funny scene. Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine. Jesus says, so what? I'm not a caterer. Do I look like a caterer, mother? And then I think she just gives him one of those motherly looks and kind of glares at him. She doesn't say anything. Then she goes over to the servants and says, loud enough for Jesus to hear, you do whatever he tells you. And I kind of picture Jesus sort of sighing and saying, oh, okay, mother, uh, this isn't my time, but boom. So then he, he, he makes water into wine, which I think uh, it may have been G.K. Chesterton or C.S. Lewis or C.S. Lewis quoting Chesterton saying, this is a miracle for sure, although God turns water into wine every year, right? I mean, it rains on right. the vineyards in Napa Valley and out comes wine. Jesus just did it quicker yeah. here. But again, it's just solving a little social embarrassment for this wedding host. How in the world is this worthy of the Son of God, the Word of God made flesh? And yet, here's how the uh, the last verse, which we didn't read, verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Yeah. This was glory? And this was a sign? So we mentioned the fact in the first program that John has this special word for the miracles of Jesus. He calls them signs. And as you pointed out, Scott, that's like an arrow pointing to some truth about Jesus. So the first question is, what's the truth about Jesus that this sign is indicating, is pointing to? It's got to be something to do with the newness of the kingdom coming in Jesus. He's the bridegroom the wedding celebration ultimately is going to involve uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's the new wine that overflows the old ceremonial jars of the old covenant. Something to do with newness, certainly. It's also, and we'll talk about this a little bit at the end of this program, there's something wonderful to be observed in the fact that Jesus' glory shined through at this ordinary event. It's just a wedding reception. They happen every day practically, right? But if Jesus' glory can shine there, then maybe it can shine in your life and in my life on the average Tuesday afternoon or Friday morning. The skies don't have to split apart. The earth doesn't need to quake for us to be in the presence of glory. It can emerge even at a little wedding reception. And it was enough for the disciples to put their faith in him. They believed in him. So glory, it turns out, can crop up almost anywhere. And that, I think, is good news for all of us. But we'll think about that at the end of the program. But in John chapter 2, something much more outwardly dramatic happens. And we'll look at that in just a moment. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you 
Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Dave Bast. And I'm Scott Jose. And Dave, on a recent Groundwork series that we did on the public ministry of Jesus, and we looked at different components of it, we mentioned that if you just looked at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you might have the impression that Jesus' ministry only lasted, his public ministry only lasted one year. But John's gospel makes it clear that it was at least three years, and the reason we know that is because John pays a lot of attention to the Jewish festivals, the biggest of which, of course, is Passover, and there are three Passovers in John's gospel, which indicates Jesus' ministry must have lasted at least three years. And the first Passover comes here in John chapter 2. Right. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover, John says, The first thing he does when he gets there is to go to the temple, and he's outraged by all the money changers and all the stuff that's going on and the selling animals and sort of crowding out the Gentiles from the outer court. And so he cleanses the temple, and John says he does it even violently. He makes a whip out of cords and drove them all out, and uh, his disciples remembered, John writes, zeal for your house will consume me. And then the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, what? It's taken 46 years to build it? You're going to raise it in three? But the temple, John writes, the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. By the way, uh, this is a little hallmark of John's writing. Frequently, he will say, almost like there are no parentheses in the Greek language, but in in English, we often put these in parentheses. Oh, at the time, we didn't know what he was talking about, but later we figured it out. He's very honest about that, and he does it here too. It's like, they didn't know what he meant either, but then after he was raised from the dead, oh, remember he said that, and they connect the dots. But the main thing we want to flag here, Dave, is that John presents us with a bit of a problem. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus cleanses the temple. This is in all four Gospels, but he does it right after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which was four or five days before he was crucified. But here we are. We're only in chapter 2. Jesus has just started, and here's the temple cleansing. Most scholars believe this did happen uh, in the final week of Jesus' life, which means John moved this up chronologically, and then the question becomes why. I guess you could say, well, maybe he did it more than once. He did it the first Passover, and then he did it three years later. But as you said, Scott, most people think that John is exercising his right as a gospel writer to kind of rearrange things, and he's bringing what will be the the last and ultimate sign of Jesus' ministry, namely his own resurrection from the dead. He's bringing it back to the very beginning, the outset of the gospel, just to make clear the point about who Jesus is and what his body actually represents. Because, says John, he's the temple uh, in his own person, in his own flesh. He is the intersection between heaven and earth. As Tom Wright has often said, that's what the temple stands for. It's the point at which heaven and earth are linked. And actually, that harkens back to a very interesting detail, which we didn't have time for in our last program. At the end of John 1, 
Jesus depicts himself as the ladder, like Jacob's ladder, right. that the angels are going up and down. He's the connector between earth and heaven. And as the commentator Marianne May Thompson points out, Dave, this was really important because by the time John wrote this gospel later in the first century, John seems to have survived longer than most of the other disciples before being martyred. The temple, the physical temple was gone. In 70 AD, the Romans sacked Jerusalem and the temple was gone. And so by the time John wrote this gospel, a lot of Jews, including ones who had come to embrace Jesus as their Messiah and those who were considering, the burning question was, where's the temple? So many of God's promises in the Bible are tied to the temple, and now there is no temple. The temple was gone. This was Herod's temple, right? Not Solomon's. That had been destroyed long before. No temple. And so John comes right at the beginning, and this is why he moves up the cleansing of the temple to the beginning to say, don't worry, there's still a temple. It's Jesus. Yeah. And he's not going anywhere. He is the resurrected one. So don't worry that there's no temple. There is. And he's the place where God truly dwelt on earth, as was symbolized in the Holy of Holies. Uh, Yeah, so this temple imagery is going to be really important for not only John's gospel, but for the whole New Testament and for the Christian faith. And there's also, I think, an indication here. We said earlier, uh, as we opened the series, that it's very probable that John knew the other three gospels, Mm -hmm. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in those Gospels, when Jesus cleanses the temple, he also quotes a verse from the Old Testament. In John, it's the disciples who quote from the Old Testament, zeal for your house has consumed me. He's, he's zealous. He's full of. But in the synoptics, the verse that's quoted is, my house shall be a house of prayer for the nations. Yep. And here we see the fact that it was the Gentiles who were being crowded out from the only place they could congregate near the temple by all the money changers. Yeah, we often turn this into a little moralism like, oh, you know, don't let the church youth group sell brownies after church because that's what Jesus... No, it wasn't that per se. I mean, that was a long tradition. People had to be able to buy things to sacrifice. It was the crowding out, as you say, of the people God wanted to draw in. Jesus uh, is going to say in the next chapter, which we're actually not going to look at, we're going to skip John 3 and the Nicodemus story, but he says to Nicodemus, I'm going to be raised up and I will draw all people to myself, not just all Israel, not just all the Jews. He said, I'm going to draw all people. Well, then we're going to need more room in the temple, aren't we? So Jesus is creating room. He's making space for all these others he's going to draw to himself as the living temple. That is so very, very important um, in terms of the ministry of Jesus and what he's ultimately going to do. Well, there's another sign that we want to look at in this book of signs, and uh, it has to do with water, and that's where we'll turn next. What does it mean to be a Christian and a fan of movies, music, television, and video games? I'm Josh Larson, editor of thinkchristian.net and host of the Think Christian podcast. I invite you to join us for faith-filled reflections on pop culture. Visit us at thinkchristian.net or search for the Think Christian podcast, where we'll be talking about what it means to be a follower of Christ, even in the playful moments of our lives. I'm Scott Jose, along with Dave Bast, and you're listening to Groundwork, and uh, we're going to wrap up now this program two of seven programs dedicated to the Gospel of John, the wonderful fourth gospel. And uh, 
We're going to uh, move into John chapter 4. We said we're going to skip chapter 3 and Nicodemus, which means, ironically, we're skipping the most famous verse of John 3.16. That's okay. John loved to tell long stories. In fact, some of the longest stories in the whole Bible, and definitely the longest stories in the New Testament, are all in John's gospel. John 4, which we're looking at now, the woman at the well. John 9, the man born blind. We're going to look at that in a future program. John 11, the raising of Lazarus. These are super long stories. They're all inside the book of signs, which is John 2 through 12. And now we come to John chapter 4. Right. The story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And though it doesn't contain a miracle, so it's not technically one of the seven signs or miracles pointing to Jesus' identity, it does have symbolic language that functions as a Mm -hmm. sign of Jesus as the water of life. So here's how the story uh, begins. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Evidently, Jesus and the disciples are traveling between Jerusalem and Galilee. Galilee, their home base. Jerusalem, they had been there for the Passover. He had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, there's his human nature, Uh, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Wonderful beginning to this story. Again, a long story, 40-some verses before we're done. We won't be able to read most of it. But he had to go through Samaria. Well, he didn't have to. Uh, In fact, a lot of Jews in Jesus' day would take the long way around to avoid those terrible Samaritans. There was great animosity between uh, the Jews of Jerusalem, the Jews of most of Israel, and the Samaritans. And there's a long history there that we can't go into. But we're told Jesus had to go through Samaria. Interestingly, Dave, in the Greek, it's just a short little phrase, but it's the same phrase used elsewhere that he had to die. It was necessary for our salvation. So that maybe signals something familiar. But the other thing that for most readers of John's gospel, this is what is called a type scene. A type scene is a classic setup in the Bible. And in the Bible, when a man and a woman meet at a well, there's going to be an engagement. They're going to get married. We saw it, you know, in the Old Testament already in the book of Genesis, right, with Isaac and Rebekah, and then again with Jacob and Rachel. This is even Jacob's well. There's going to be some sort of an engagement. Now, it's not a literal engagement here, and yet a kind of marriage does take place here. And between such unlikely candidates, you know, on the one hand, here's Jesus, the sinless Son of God, made human, made flesh for us, for our salvation— On the other hand, a Samaritan woman with, as we'll learn later in the story, a rather dubious backstory to her life. So there are multiple barriers between these two, and John shows Jesus as the barrier breaker. He opens a conversation with this woman. I mean, there was a social barrier for a man 
to speak to a strange woman not part of his family, that just was not done. That was taboo. Yeah, men weren't even supposed to speak to their wives in public in strict Jewish circles. So right. this was really unusual. And then there's the racial and the religious thing between yep. the Jews and the Samaritans and even the moral issue of what kind of person this woman was. Right. Most people, you know, there was a reason that Jesus was alone at the well. It was noon. It was high noon. It was hot. Nobody, water weighs six pounds per gallon. You didn't haul it in the noonday sun. You you did it in the morning, in the cool of the morning, in the cool of the evening. And guess what else happened in villages like this in the cool of the morning, in the cool of the evening? The whole village gathered. It was a social time. And she didn't want to go there then because she was an outcast. She was looked down upon. She was the uh, the object of, of rumor and scandal in the village. She was multiple divorces. She was living with a man that she wasn't married to. She didn't dare go to the well when other people were there. That's how lonely she is. That's how broken she is. And Jesus knows this about her. And so he reaches out to her in love and offers her, indeed, Living, living water, water which, bubbling up, yep. as it'll say a bit. It's the life that the Spirit of Jesus brings. Uh, it bubbles up within you like a spring and uh, brings refreshment. And so Jesus carries on the conversation, and there's a, an important moment where she says, well, yeah, give me some of this water. I'm tired of schlepping this jug uh, back and forth, thinking he's talking about literal water. And then he says, well, go call your husband. And then she has to kind of own up to... Uh, what her life is when Jesus points it out to her. And then the the conversation continues. Yeah, in fact, after Jesus says that about, you know, the man you're living with now, it's not your husband, she <laughs> she kind of blushes and changes the subject. Yeah. Uh, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Yeah. So let's <laughs> talk about worship. Uh, you know, and then she's, you know, you Jews think you can only worship God in Jerusalem. We think you can do it here in Samaria. What do you think? And Jesus says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And yet a time is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then the woman says in verse 25, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what are you doing? Why are you talking with her? And then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. And tucked into here, Dave, is what is actually the first I am saying in the gospel. We, we only think about I am the bread of life or I am the good shepherd. But when the woman says here, the Messiah is coming, in the Greek, Jesus just says, ego eimi, I am and she is converted in a heartbeat. Why not? He just revealed to her he is the Messiah. Yeah. And more than that, he's the great I the am. The great I am of the Old Testament. Uh, which will occur later in John chapter 8 in the same way. Jesus simply says, I am. What a wonderful story this is, really. I, there's so much that's here. It's so rich. But just notice this. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And here they both are. He speaks the truth to her. He says about salvation, you, you know, you're worshiping what you don't know. You're worshiping in ignorance. You may be sincere, but you, still, you, you don't know what you're doing. And uh, salvation is of the Jews, and specifically one particular Jew, namely I, I am. Yeah. 
but also the grace of inviting her, just come to me and you'll have living water. And she does and immediately goes back and brings back the village. Now, the people she had been avoiding, yeah. she now goes and witnesses to them. She becomes an evangelist. And so there you have it. In John 2 and 4 that we've looked at in this program, in the most ordinary of circumstances, the glory of God, the glory of God's one and only bursts forth. And as we said earlier in this program, uh, that's good news for all of us. The glory of God can engulf us almost any day. You don't have to see grand miracles Jesus is with us every day, full of grace and truth. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork today. We're your hosts, Dave Bast and Scott Jose, and we hope you'll join us again next time as we continue studying the signs of Jesus as they're recorded in the Gospel of John, chapters 5 through 11. Connect with us at groundworkonline.com to share what Groundwork means to you or tell us what you'd like to hear next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Media, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframemedia.com for more information. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our content and managing producer is Courtney Jacob. 